let me bring up my buddy Josh Christian here. I have known Josh. How long have I known you, Josh? 99. Yeah. Um, Josh is a guy that came on and worked at Valley Church, which helped plant this church. And um, we served on staff together at Valley for uh, several years. And when you're on staff several years in youth ministry, you just have some great stories. So I'm not going to share them. Josh may share some, but come ask us later. But what I appreciate about Josh and his wife, Ashley, and their three precious boys um, is they just have such a huge heart for ministry and for people and for the kingdom. And um, I have been, I've been trying to get this guy down. He's a busy guy. He really is. Uh, but I've been trying to get him down here. I'm thrilled to have him come uh, share with you from God's word. And so uh, please just give it up. Welcome, Josh. Uh, to Thanks, Dave. Well, I am absolutely honored to be here today. Uh, I, Dave was my first boss in ministry, actually. And the first time I went full-time in ministry was at Valley, and uh, so he taught me most of what I know, actually. And, and actually, Ben, uh, was uh, uh, he served under me at the junior high ministry there, too. So we've got kind of this, you know, this old school thing going today. So, um, so yeah, I'm honored to be here today, and I'm glad Dave brought this up earlier, because I was kind of thinking the same thing, that he just did not want to touch this subject. So um, I hope that, uh, uh, that you guys can learn a lot from what I'm going to share with you guys this morning. But first... Um, one of the things I like to do when I hear someone new speak that I haven't ever heard before is just to get to know them a little bit. So uh, my wife, Ashley, is right here, and uh, we've been married since 2001, and actually Dave was in our wedding. And um, so we, uh, we have three wonderful boys. They're seven, five, and two, Jaden, Trace, and Liam, in that order. And uh, we are actually on the waiting list. We just uh, went on the waiting list about a week and a half ago for a, a little girl that we're adopting uh, from the foster care system. So um, any day, hopefully over the next year. <laughs> so it's one of those hurry up and wait things. Um, I have been in uh, full-time youth ministry since 1999, and uh, uh, when I started under Dave, and uh, I'm currently serving as the student ministries pastor at Impact Community Church in Sacramento, and I've been there since 2006. Um, it's a great church, growing, thriving. It's also a church plant of about 10, uh, 11 years old, and uh, so it's a great place to be. So um, I was trying to figure out a way to work this in, and uh, I think you'll, you'll figure it out later, but... Um, I got to tell you a little story about uh, Dave. Uh, when I first started working at Valley, um, he, there was also an intern there, and he was actually, uh, him and I went to school together, great friends, his name was Kevin, and uh, so he was the high school intern while I was the junior high director, and uh, so we hadn't been working there very long, uh, maybe a couple months, when we got this wild idea, as college kids tend to do, um, to pull a prank on Dave. And so we, we hadn't known him uh, for very long. We didn't know how he'd react, but we thought he was a cool guy. And so uh, what we did is we, uh, at like 2 a.m. one morning, we go down to the church office, and we stopped at like Rite Aid or the grocery store or something on the way. You know those little Dixie cups that you get like in doctor's offices? Well, we bought a 1,000 Dixie cups, okay? And uh, what we proceeded to do is l- little things of, uh, of water, and we filled up these Dixie cups with water. And we started placing them all over Dave's office. And so uh, there's Kevin. Here's a much younger and more with more hair, me. Um, and, uh, and so we started doing this. And it took us probably a couple hours to set all these things out, spaced so far apart. Dave, you remember this office? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so um, this is kind of the finished result of what it was. It was great. And so, uh, so here, we, here we are, 2 a.m., it's probably like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. by this time, we were wiped, and so we left, and we went to sleep that night. Came in, came in the next morning, and you know, it's one of those things, you don't want to like, 
like poke your head in there to see what's going on. But we knew Dave was in the office, but we hadn't heard anything. And it was, he'd probably been, been in for almost an hour before he finally buzzes us in. And uh, we shared an office together, Kevin and I. And so he says, hey, why don't you guys come down to my office? And we're just looking at each other like, what is going on here? So uh, is, are we in trouble or anything? So we go uh, over to his office, and the door's propped open like it almost always was. And here was Dave sitting behind his desk. And if you're looking at the picture, um, we're thinking, how in the world did he get over there? Because, like, did he climb on the ceiling like Superman or Spider-Man or something? So, so he's sitting behind his desk just kind of looking up. And he's like, hey, what's up, guys? And we're just like, uh, nothing. Oh, my gosh, look at this. And we're trying to play it off. And he totally, totally had us busted. And so we're kind of playing it off there. But I'm going to share with you a little bit later what happens next, all right? Uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So there's a little bit of a segue. Dave and I go way back. Um, just great, great memories. So when Dave uh, called me, uh, this was actually a couple months ago when, when I got a message from him on Facebook, and we've been trying to connect like this for a while, um, and he asked me to come and speak, and he told me what the topic was, and that you guys were in Ephesians. Um, i got to tell you, I was really excited, because I love the book of Ephesians. I love the Apostle Paul, the writer of Ephesians. In fact, in about six weeks, I'm sharing a message. What's up, guys? Um, old friends right here, too. Um, I'm sharing a message at my church um, on Paul and, uh, and his writings and everything, so I love the background here, and uh, so when he started sharing with me this, the, the concept of one God, um, or one plan ruled by one God, uh, I tell you, it was awesome. Just, just getting to know his heart for this series that you guys are in right now, and really what I started thinking of was this idea of unity, and this idea of us belonging to, to one God, adopted as children under his, uh, under his plan. And uh, as I started thinking about it, when I when I was looking at the, the surrounding passages, really what you find, and that you've been going over the last couple of weeks, is that this idea of unity really is born out of this idea of submission, and ultimately submission to God. And that's what Paul is talking about as he talks about husbands and wives, like a couple weeks ago, and then, uh, and then children and parents last week. And then this morning, what we're going to be looking at is something uh, that might strike you a little odd for our uh, culture right now, but slaves and masters. And so right now, I want you to pull out your Bibles. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter uh, 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. So this week, it's really no different um, than the last couple weeks. Uh, The core concepts are the same. It just takes on a different look because of the uh, the cultural aspects of it that we're looking at. What Paul has done is he's applied God's commands for mutual submission in a bunch of of different uh, relationships. So in each relationship... Paul covers kind of the mindset, the motive, motivation, the essence behind uh, what mutual submission is. And in each, each of these three types of relationships, we can then look at those and, and learn how to apply that in our own lives in every aspect of our lives today. So this morning, looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, I just wanted to read it for you guys. And uh, you can follow along on the screens uh, as I read. It starts off by saying, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So that's a giant run-on sentence, I understand. 
Um, going to uh, verse 9, though, it says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both, your, or both their master and yours is in heaven, and that, and that there is no partiality with him. So this section of Scripture right here, it takes a consideration of submission in a way that we haven't looked at yet. Um, now, before we jump into some of this, before we jump into the core of what this is, I want to give you some background of it, but then also some application practical stuff. But I first want to start out by saying a couple things. First off is this. I am by no means an expert authority figure on the history of world slavery. I, I have just done some basic research into what the, the culture of this time when Paul wrote this was. Um, so I am by no means an expert in this. Um, and then second, I want to be very clear, though, that I think there's a, been a lot of times in, the, in our history, in Christian hit, history, that Paul, uh, uh, the, the words that Paul has spoken, have been misconstrued to say that he is either condoning or uh, approving of slavery. And that's not at all what is going on here. In fact, we'll hear in just a couple minutes that it's actually quite the opposite um, from that, and that he is getting, trying to get away from slavery and so forth. Um, I think it's helpful, though, as we jump into this, to, to start to get some uh, broader understanding of the cultural background of slavery during that time. And so, um, what did slavery look like in the Roman Empire? Well, I'm going to run through some things real quick. Um, William Barclay, a theologian that lived around the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century, um, he said this, It has been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. That's a lot, a lot of slaves. In Paul's day, a kind of terrible idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome, and Rome was the, uh, was the mistress of the world, and therefore it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to work. And so practically all work was done by slaves. That's what William Barclay says about slavery, the beginnings of slavery. Uh, we go on to, to hear the words of Aristotle, and uh, the fact that Aristotle, the famous philosopher, stated that there can, no, there can never be friendship between a master and a slave, uh, for they have nothing in common. And he says this, for a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate object, or inanimate slave. Uh, Marcus Terentius Varro, he's a, a Roman scholar and writer, um, lived around the time uh, right before Jesus was born, um, and he was writing on agriculture, and uh, agriculture was obviously a huge industry uh, back in the Roman Empire, but he divides agricultural instruments into three different classes, the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. Um, the, in, the articulate are the slaves. Uh, the inarticulate are the cattle, and the mute are the vehicles by which they, they plow the fields. Um, and then he says that the slave is no better than a beast who happens to be able to talk. Uh, again, Cato the Younger, uh, he's a Roman politician, statesman around that time. Um, he gives advice to a man taking over a farm, and he writes this. He, he says, he must go over it and throw out everything that is past its work, and old slaves too must be thrown out on the scrap heap to starve. When a slave is ill, it is sheer extravagance to issue him with normal rations. Um, Gaius, the, the Roman lawyer, writes uh, in, in his uh, writings, The Institutes, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. Caesar Augustus, he crucified a slave because he accidentally killed his pet quail. Um, uh, Vidius, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this name, Polio or whatever, Augustus' buddy, his crony, um, he flung a slave while still alive into his pond full of lamprey eels to be eaten alive. 
Um, and so, if you're like me and any other human, as you read this stuff and see this stuff and hear this stuff, you can't help but be disgusted uh, by the way that slaves were treated uh, during the time that Jesus walked the earth. And so, it's, it's in this scene that Paul comes into the story and starts to begin his writings and ministry to not just the masters of the slaves, because again, it was, uh, it was very commonplace for Christians in the early church to have slaves as well, but also to the slaves themselves. And that was a revolutionary, revolutionary idea because obviously slaves were not considered to be human. They were considered to be beasts and workhorses. And so this is what Paul comes in. So Paul starts to speak on slavery. And what Paul says is that, um, and here I am again going forward. There we go. Um, slavery was an assumed fact of life. It was, it was an assumed fact of life just like any other cultural thing today is, uh, just like paying taxes is. It's, it's something that just was a part of the culture during that time. And Paul knew that. He understood that. He frequently writes to both slaves and masters um, in his writings several times throughout the New Testament. He, re- he writes them in regards to their character, to their conduct, to each other. Um, and he spoke of himself uh, and others as slaves of God, in fact. Um, in fact, when Paul met this guy named Onesimus, um, he was a runaway slave, and uh, he led him to Christ, actually, to belief in Christ. And then Paul writes to his master, Philemon, um, this letter, and that's the book of Philemon that we have in the New Testament today. And in this letter, um, he writes to Philemon and basically tells Philemon, hey, um, he, Onesimus has been such a blessing to me. He's an amazing person. Um, I urge you to ex- receive him back as a brother, Paul says, not as a slave. And, and even though he's your slave receive him back as a brother. And then he begins to infer in the book of Philemon to, to let him go free so they can re- return back to work for Paul. Again, Paul makes it uh, clear many times that earthly status here on this earth does not have anything to do with how God sees you. In fact, he, he speaks the fact that there's no second-class citizens when it comes to God. Galatians 3.28, Paul writes this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no uh, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we can see that Paul, on many accounts, actually takes a stand against slavery during this time in his writings. But he knows that there is a culture that he has to work within and to understand, just like we have to work within our culture that we live in today here in California. Um, And so he writes this, to, to try to bring about change, not through politics, not through uh, force, but simply by pointing to Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so that's a little bit of the background. His instructions to, slave, to slaves, he, he knew the cultural uh, backgrounds of the time. Um, he knew that there was uh, reasons to write the, the con- for the conduct of slaves and masters. Um, primarily, though, he, he knows that the situations regarding slaves in the church as opposed to the secular environment, the Roman environment, were starting to deteriorate even more and more. Um, he knows that slaves can be either, be either obedient or disobedient in their actions, and it had become increasingly clear to Paul that he needed to address this, um, the, the way that uh, slaves and masters conducted their work together. Uh, Paul could see that, that rebellion was starting to set in into the mindset of slaves. And he could see that, that the slave owners, the Christian slave owners as part of the church, were starting to treat their slaves poorer and poorer as the days went on. Um, he could see theft happening with the slaves, and he speaks against this in Titus, in the book of, book of Titus. So Paul is approaching this, this ever-sticky situation very carefully here, 
but also with great authority uh, coming straight from the heart of God. So, as he begins this, this, this passage, um, he speaks first to the slaves. And so I want you to pull out your notes. They're inside your bulletins this morning. And I've got some fill-ins for you, so grab a pen, pencil, or whatever. And uh, I want you to follow along as we, uh, as we learn what his instructions to slaves are. So he first talks to the slaves. And uh, he basically starts to lay out a pattern and a foundation for how the slaves should obey and act with their masters. And the first thing that he talks about is that a slave should, uh, should obey humbly to their master. And that's in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This, this phrase, fear and trembling, right now, um, has been used uh, by Paul in the past in his writings. Um, in fact, in the, the book of Philippians, uh, the Philippians were asked to work out their faith with, or work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And the idea behind this is that they were to humbly conduct their lives, um, knowing that it was not their own strength that was doing it, but it was God's strength working in them and God's wisdom which was guiding and directing their lives in anything they accomplished. Um, it's in the same way that, that Paul is telling the slaves that they are to obey their masters, aware that their master's God-given authority is something that God has placed for them in their life at this point in time, but also aware that the submission to their masters comes from the Holy Spirit alone and not from their own selves. He's pointing back to God. He knows that this will be a a step of faith for the slaves. He knows that this is going to be hard and that it takes faith to approach such a situation uh, as these slaves are in with this type of attitude. So in this statement, he's encouraging these Christian slaves by telling them to lean not on their own power, but on the power of the Holy Spirit in terms of their submission to their masters. Another way that uh, slaves are told to obey is intensely. Uh, It comes from this phrase, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, Paul says. Now again, this term sincere heart right here, it's also used by Paul in many of his other writings. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 8, and uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 2, for example. And it refers to a singularity of purpose as opposed to kind of a mixed motive situation. Um, And the evidence of this is generosity. And so when a slave obeys his master, he is to have a single motive. A single motive. And that single motive is to please his master. And what Paul is describing, he's referencing the the master with the big M, the capital M. And that is Jesus. The proof of this, though, is a singular purpose and, and that's lived out by generosity and basically going above and beyond of what you are asked to do as a slave. And, uh, and so going back to what was commonplace for slaves in this time, the, how they were treated in the Roman Empire, this could have been seen as kind of a slap in the face to the slaves. You know, here they are thinking that Paul is like our hero. He's going to be standing up for us. And then he's saying, wait, I should obey with a sincere heart going above and beyond what I'm asked to do? And Paul is saying, yeah, because ultimately, remember, you are working not for yourself, but for God. So the third thing that Paul has uh, the slaves in and wants them to obey in is consistently. He wants them to obey consistently. Um, it, uh, verse 5 says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And it goes on to verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. I find that kind of interesting. The word people pleaser there is in the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, so one of those mixed motives that Paul was referencing when he talks about a sincere heart was uh, this attitude of people pleasing. Um, much like today, the people pleaser kind of seeks a casual, undiscerning approval of anyone. 
This type of approval is where, in, in this instance, the slave starts to seek the approval of his master by trickery and by deception and just kind of putting on a facade like to make him think that they're doing the work or that they're acting uh, better than they really are and so forth. The people pleaser here, of the, the, the slaves uh, that would act this way, their obedience, really, it exists only when it has a performance value, only when they can benefit from it. In other words, they need to get something out of it. And I think we've all known people like that where they won't do anything or say anything unless it benefits them. And so Paul is speaking against this and saying ultimately the, the intent is not to win approval by deception, but again by obedience. Um, so uh, humbly, intensely, consistently, Paul is laying out a foundation here for slaves and how they should conduct themselves with their masters in the places of work where they find themselves. And then lastly, what he says is that they are to obey sincerely. And this is from the heart. Um, he says, not, uh, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, Paul press, starts to press towards the heart of the matter here. Paul is stressing that it's not simply about the outward actions, the outward acts of obedience alone, but that it has everything to do with your inward spirit and how you feel about what you're doing and who you're doing it for. Paul's appeal, really, in saying this, is not to the slave's feelings. It's not saying, hey, he's saying, you know what, guys, slaves? It's not, it's not about what you guys feel. It's about what is in your heart. And uh, it's, it's this idea of making a conscious decision to obey out of love for Christ. Um, I wonder how they must have received that. You know, I mean, put, your, put, your, put yourself in their shoes or sandals at the time and, and how you must have felt with this oppression and just seeing the, the, the type of environment that they had to work in and, and live in. And then Paul is telling them, hey, it's not really about what you guys feel. It's not really about that. It's what's in your heart. Because let's be honest, this could have, uh, um, this could have felt like a slap in the face too. And so a lot of the slaves are expecting something different from what they're receiving. But ultimately, what Paul is saying is that Christian slaves are not slaves of men. They are slaves of God. And that ultimately, they are to submit to God in what, they are, in what they're doing. Paul is calling these slaves to obey their masters in a way that makes it clear that they are doing their service for God. And that's the only person they're doing it to, is Jesus himself. The Ephesian slaves were, were not instructed to obey their masters and to obey Christ. They were instructed to obey their masters in obedience to Christ. And that's quite a different mindset shift uh, that must have been taking place during that time. Um, again, this ties right into what he just said, just sentences earlier, when he talks about husbands and wives and children and parents, is that we're not to obey and submit to that person. We're to obey and submit to that person uh, because we are obeying and submitting to God. I think the Christian slave comes to understand from Ephesians that the purpose of history here is not to make people happy. It's not to help them achieve momentary comfort. It's ultimately to glorify God in everything that you do. And that was Paul's message to these slaves. And so that's kind of that's his groundwork for the slaves. But then he shifts gears a little bit. And in verse 9, he starts talking to the masters. And this is where he says, all right, masters, you're not off the hook. Just much like, I guess, uh, next week you guys are talking about husbands, 
Uh, Dave told me that story <laughs> last night. Um, but much like guys, you know, we're not off the hook uh, if you're married. And uh, he's saying the same thing to these masters. You know what? You're not off the hook yet. Um, and so verse uh, 9 of chapter 6. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, Paul tells them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So what is, uh, what is um, not said to the masters here? Well, what is not said to the masters is masters free your slaves. Okay, that is not said here. Um, again, he's walking this cultural line. And he has to be careful of what he says and because he's speaking within a cultural context there. But what is said, though, in, in when he talks to these masters is, hey, masters, submit yourselves to God. Trust God. Obey God and what he tells of you in the word, in the scriptures. Masters, put your needs aside and serve other people. Okay, He's saying, masters, use your position, your position to serve the interests of your slaves. And that's just a revolutionary concept during that time. And uh, can you just imagine what would happen to the Roman Empire, the slaves in the Roman Empire, if every master started treating their slaves that way? 60 million slaves during that time being treated as brothers and not like animals. Um, so he, he starts out by talking to, to master, or slaves and then to masters. And again, he tells, okay, masters, how are you supposed to lead? And this is where the rubber meets the road for the masters. Um, and he says, first of all, you were to lead like an obedient slave. All right? The first thing he says is, masters, do the same to them. Okay? Uh, he's saying, you know what? If you want to know how to, to lead, look at how your slaves are being told to act and submit. Paul makes, uh, makes this bold move here in saying that they need to lead humbly, they need to lead intensely, they need to lead consistently, and they need to lead sincerely. And he's applying the same rules that he just applied to the slaves, he's applying them to the masters too. Again, this was very unusual for this time. Very counterculture. Something very bold that Paul was doing here. Um, but I think it's great because he really starts to explore the heart of God in this. Paul's concern here is not about cultural norms. It's about influencing change and helping us all submit to God better. Um, Paul, in all reality, is basically simply restating what the Ephesian church and any church during that time, the early church, knew um, had already been taught straight from the mouth of Jesus. And that's found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, Mark 12, 31. We know it as, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is doing here by saying this is he's saying, you know what? Your slaves are not tools. They are not inan- or animate objects to be used. They are your neighbors. And you need to start treating them as such. And that's, that's just absolutely revolutionary for that time. Um, how is a master to lead? Like an obedient slave, but also without threatening. All right? And there it is. Without threatening, okay? Um, he only makes one clear, concise statement um, to the specifics of how a master should lead. And that's that they should lead, with, lead without threatening. I think it's interesting that he only lists this one specific area, though, um, I don't, know what it, I don't know why he does that. I, I think there were some, probably some reasons behind it. It could have been that the, the Christian slaves were treated differently because they were Christians, and the masters were Christians, and so there had already been some teaching regarding the way that they should treat their slaves, and so they might have not wanted to approach their slaves in the violent way that the rest of the Roman Empire had, um, and so maybe they resorted to 
uh, threatening to, to make their slaves obey them. And, but what Paul is saying here is, hey, that's no better than, than the Roman, your Roman uh, counterparts here. Do not threaten your slaves. Uh, because ultimately, the, the problem is that when you threaten slaves, when you threaten someone, it produces this obedience, but it's an obedience through fear, right? It's kind of like when you have a dog and you start to reward the dog through, uh, you know, to do tricks or whatever, through food, right? And, um, and it's rewarded through something very good. It's something that it likes or treats or whatever. But there's times and there's horrible people out there that train their dogs through violence and through hurting them. And so their, their dogs then obey them, but they obey them out of fear rather than out of gratitude. And what Paul is saying here is you need to stop your threatening and learn to lead them, uh, lead them better. He wants them to lead in a different way, uh, a, a way that is motivated by grace and by gratitude for their slaves. And that's just, again, uh, very, very uh, counterculture to, to that day. Uh, the last few words, though, I think really start to, to resonate the heart of God and really what Paul's stance on slavery was. And that's when he says this, there is no partiality with him. And he's speaking of God. And, and when he says that, he finishes his exhortation here, to, to masters by stating that his position and ultimately God's position is that they are equal. There is no partiality to God. When God looks at you, masters, he does not see a master. He sees a child of God. And when God looks at you, slaves, he does not see a slave. He sees a child of God. And you guys are both on the same playing field. Because ultimately what Paul is saying is that the slave-master relationship is a relationship that should be rooted in Christ, just like husbands and wives, just like child and parents. It is that type of relationship. They are both equal slaves of Christ. And that's where the true focus should lie, is, is on their relationship with Christ and not with each other. So, this brings us kind of to the point this morning um, where we look at kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is the action. This is the, the time where we take all this cultural stuff, the historical stuff that we just kind of delve through, and we, we say to ourselves, okay, how does this apply to us? How can I take this to my life tomorrow when I go to work or to my school or wherever it might be? And uh, as we look at this, I, I, you know, obviously slavery, as it at least was in the Roman Empire during that time when Paul writes this, is not present in our culture today. It is absolutely not present. Um, it is in different parts of the world, but for us here, uh, for you guys here in the Silicon Valley, me back in Sacramento, um, it's just not there. And so we have to start to maybe broaden that a little bit and look at other ways where this applies. And Dave alluded to it earlier when he started talking about bosses and employees. Because I think that there have been times for many of us in different jobs throughout where we've kind of felt like slaves, right? In the, the employment times, you know? And uh, whatever type of job that is, I don't know. But um, I think there are many times where we start to feel that there's this uh, this hierarchy management type of thing, and, and sometimes we can feel mistreated in the workplace, in our area of employment. Um, so this situation, I think we can apply to what Paul is talking about here. Now, when it comes to employment, to working, it's kind of a fact of life. It is something that we have to do, right? There's the old saying that nothing is for sure in life except for death and taxes, right? And taxes comes from working, right? You know, So it's one of those things that we have to do. Um, but really, there are as many jobs as there are people. And there's just a broad uh, expanse of different types of works. There's the safe and mundane to the extremely dangerous. There's the, you know, isolated and lonely to the crazy hyper-connected. 
There's the intense to the low-key type of jobs. There's just tons of different ways that we as human beings can work in our culture. Um, But one thing is common in all of those. One thing is common is that in any type of job that you have, any place that you work, there is the idea that you are in submission to someone, whether that be a boss, whether that be a director, someone who's over you, whether that be your customers as a self-employed person, maybe you own your own business and, and so you, re, you are accountable to your customers, um, stay-at-home parents, that would be your children. You see what I'm talking about here? We are all in submission to someone. And so I think this is a great way for us to apply this to our everyday lives. Um, I think it's uh, important that as we look at these principles that we're going to be looking at just in a couple minutes, that we, we start to apply these to all aspects of our lives. Because even though we're going to be honing in on the work, the employment, uh, these things can really be applied in any, any situation where there is someone over you or under you, um, whether you feel like a slave or a master, all right? Um, so I put in your notes, principles for living as an everyday slave, kind of putting yourself in that mindset. The idea behind this is, is that we need to constantly remember who is our ultimate boss, who is the boss of us. In fact, um, when, when we profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that term Lord has been used for hundreds of years and thousands of years to describe a boss, a master, someone who is master over us. And so who our ultimate master is, is Jesus Christ. Um, as we live our lives, these principles will help us keep our hearts and our minds focused on where God wants us to be, wherever we might find ourselves in submission to him. So the first principle for living as an everyday slave is this. Submission to authorities is rooted in submission to God. It's pretty, pretty foundational. This is kind of the most important one that we have here. Um, this principle says that we must accept that ultimately our submission to our bosses, our leaders, you can even take this to government, okay? Our submission to these people is rooted, is founded, begins in our submission to Jesus Christ. And that, that's a, a, a very crazy thing when you start to think about it. Because when, you, when we find it hard to submit to our superior, when you can't imagine submitting to that guy or whoever they may be, we need to remember that we're not submitting to them. We're ultimately submitting to God. And that will help us as we work out our everyday lives um, in thinking of our place in this world. Um, by submitting to these people, to our superiors, whoever it might be, Uh, We are showing our love not just to God, but we are showing our love of God with those around us. And I think that's a key point that that we'll come back to in a few minutes. But um, this idea that it is an actual witness to others when we begin to do this. Uh, The second way, second principle, is that submission to authorities is the will of God. It's actually God's will that we submit to, to authorities. I think culturally, in our culture today, we tend to get this wrong. Submission to authorities is the will of God. All right? So culturally speaking, I think we tend to get this wrong a little bit. We tend to focus on individualism, on democracy, on a group effort, um, not in our submission. Just in the very basics of how this might start working, this is, this is when we're uh, in submission to a leader that may, we may feel incompetent, that we may feel aggressive or mean, or that we just plain don't like, or we think we can do a better job, we start to get that attitude of, man, I can do it better than that guy. 
right? And it's that subversiveness that comes in and starts to undermine the authorities that are above us. In the uh, biggest way, what that is, is like a, a, when a military coup happens and throws the government over. Or in the office environment where one person decides that, you know what, I can do it better than this guy, and they start on this campaign to get rid of the boss and take their place. Um, this office takeover, okay? Um, this idea is not what the Bible talks about. And I understand this may, might be a sticky point for some of us, because ultimately, competition in the workplace is good. I think it is good. It, it helps us perform better. Um, because ultimately, the, the goal here is to constantly move up, right? To be promoted. And to do that, you have to compete uh, for whatever job it might be. Um, ultimately, to earn more money and to, to have a higher level of um, responsibility and everything. I think that's great. And these are good objectives. But there's a right and a wrong way to do them. And I think the point at which one crosses the line into where we, we start going against the will of God is when the pursuit of our, adva- our, of our advancement, it either, um, uh, it either results in the trampling of those around us, and we start to trample those or push those aside and not care about the needs and, and desires of the, the coworkers around us or even of our, of our bosses, but, but or, or it's that we start to rebel uh, to those in authority over us. And I think that's where, man, it's, the line's being crossed because ultimately... When we get right down to it, the clear teaching of Scripture is that we are, unless the issue violates God's moral will, to trust God and obey the authorities He has placed over us. And I think that's, a, that's something that can go well with you uh, as you live out your lives. Um, the third principle is that submission to authorities is deeper than uh, simple obedience. It is deeper than. This principle might cause some discomfort for some of us. This might be the part where you're kind of thinking, oh, man, really? You know, like, did he really just say that? But here's what it is. Um, I, uh, you know, we have this saying in my house. And uh, my wife and I, as our kids are growing up, we, we find ourselves saying this more and more and impl- applying this principle more and more for our kids. And, and I know it's a shocker, but as a pastor, my kids uh, misbehave. I know that's crazy to think about. But it, it's actually true. And just like any other 7, 5, or 2-year-old, uh, they don't like to do chores. They don't like to pick up after themselves or to brush their teeth or get, get ready for bed or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so our kids, what we, we have this saying is that when we tell them to do something, give them a command, um, and they start to disrespect us, talk back to us or whatever, we say, hey, uh-uh, stop. You need to obey with a happy heart. And this is really this principle in action is that, dis, uh, is that uh, obedience, submission, goes deeper than just simple obedience. Because I think we all know that it's possible to obey someone while still holding and harboring bitter feelings and grudges. I know that happens all the time in the workplace. I know that happens, um, you know, like say paying taxes or whatever it might be. We all find ourselves in situations where we uh, may not think that we, we should have to do what we are told to do, but we do it anyway. And, uh, and we still find ourselves with this attitude that says, you know what, I don't like this. And what Paul is saying here is that submission really goes beyond that. It has to do with something deeper. And, and finding that your submission is not rooted in what, what you're submitting to, but it's submission to God. And ultimately, that should be your heart's motives. Ultimately, that's what should be coming from inside. Because none of us like to pay taxes. None of us like to have to go the speed limit all the time. None of us have to, uh, like to have to take on that extra project when we have you know, more than a million things to do at work. None of us like to do that, but we do it anyway. And what Paul's saying here is you do it not because you have to, 
but because you wanting to serve God. See, I think it's in times like these that we, we, uh, we remember this principle. The, pr- the principle of asking us to obey with a happy heart. Uh, times like this, co- this uh, economy that we're in, when we're just fighting tooth and nail for, for every last cent that we make, when there's layoffs and foreclosures and all this stuff. Um, to ultimately remember that what you are doing is not for yourself. It is not for the person that you're, you're working for, but it is for God. God calls us to go beyond, to go above and beyond, and really allow Him to transform us from the inside out into our heart. So to help illustrate the, the first three principles here, um, imagine that you're in an office environment, okay? You're in this office environment. I love the show, The Office, on NBC. I think it's brilliant comedy. Um, a lot of people either love it or hate it, but I love it. And so imagine that you're in this, this office environment, and uh, there's this boss who's maybe a little incompetent, all right? This boss that you might think of, like, what is he doing? He's running this company into the ground, or maybe he's just mean or uh, authoritarian or whatever it might be. Um, He's just not a good boss. And so here's this environment, and in the, in the office, the entire office doesn't like this guy. They, they make fun of him behind their backs. Uh, they, they tell funny, goofy stories about him. And they, you know, when he's present, they start doing their job, and they're on their computers. But when he leaves for a meeting or whatever, it's like office Olympics all over again, right? And it's just, you, you just go off and have fun. So imagine you're in this environment, and because of the feelings towards this boss, because of this, the work that is done is actually beginning to be mediocre. It's actually only, it's not really helping the company any. It's just getting the bare basics done. And when the boss is watching, watching, sure, yeah, you're getting your work done, but there's certainly no going above and beyond for this guy, right? I mean, he can't even do his job, so why should I do mine? And this attitude starts setting in, and unfortunately, this spreads to the rest of the office, and it's very easy to find in an office environment like that where there is uh, backbiting, there's backstabbing, there's uh, just rude, absolutely horrible comments made about this person. Um, there's work that's not being performed, uh, people not excelling. It, it's just this gnarly environment. So what if, rather than going along with all that, or maybe not even going along with all that, what if, maybe rather than just minding your own business and staying out of it, what if we were to kind of take a stand and apply these principles. And uh, what if uh, we started to not only just refuse to be a part of it, but actually stand up and say, hey, this isn't right. This is not right, what we're doing. Sure, whatever your feelings are about this guy, uh, this guy that's fine, but, but we've got a job to do, and we're not working for him. We're working for, you know, put your customers out there, or whatever it is, the corporation, or, or whatever it might be. And what if you were to stand up and start doing this? And in your own life, as you work through it, what if you went above and beyond? Even though you may not agree with everything, what if you went above and beyond? What if you just you put your whole heart into your work there, working as if you were working for Jesus sitting in the door next, or in the office next to you rather than this guy? And if you were to start to do that, just think about what would start to happen. The people around you would, well, A, they think you're nuts, but um, they would start to realize, hey, there's something different about this person. And they're going to start to ask you about that. And really what, what this is, it's living out your integrity in your workplace. And with that integrity, um, when, when you start to exhibit that integrity, people start to notice. And when people start to notice, um, they want to know why. And that, my friends, is a clear, obvious, open door that God gives you to share the good news that you're not working for this company. You're not working for this boss. You are working for your Savior. 
and that is a powerful message, message that you can share with the people around you. So when we begin to act differently from the cultural norms, from what is accepted in our culture, um, people start to notice. And that is an avenue that we can begin to share our faith in Jesus with other people. So this last principle, the, the last one that we'll share this morning, uh, this can be applied to any aspect of your life. And obviously, you've applied it previous, in the previous weeks between uh, husbands and wives, children and parents. Again, it's, it's very similar to that. But submission isn't just for slaves. It's for masters, too. Because Paul makes it very clear that this type of submission, this true submission to God, is, is, is our duty as believers in Jesus Christ. To think of Him as our boss. To think of Him as the one that we're accountable to in everything we do. Paul really isn't stating anything new. He knows full well that the principle that he's sharing in this has been shared before, and that the people who are hearing this, that are reading this letter, the church in Ephesus, that is getting this letter from Paul, will remember the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, when he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Because that's true submission. This principle is also found at the very uh, foundation of why Jesus came in the first place. And just a chapter later, Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking with uh, some of his disciples. And these guys, uh, James and John, two brothers, disciples of Jesus, they walked with Jesus for, uh, for a long time at that point. And they start, uh, start this conversation. And they're talking about, you know, man, who, who should be the greatest? And that was Mark chapter 9. But then they start, they keep prodding. And then they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, can, can you put me and my brother at your right and left hand? And that's just what they're saying is, hey, can you make us the greatest in your kingdom? Can you, can you make us the most important? And Jesus responds to them only as our Lord and Savior can. And he says this, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's reiterating what he had just said. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life is a ransom for many. And what Paul is stating here to the Ephesian church is what they know of the work of Christ. And the fact that Christ came not to lord it over them as their master, but to serve them. And when he's speaking to servants, or to slaves, and he masters specifically, he's saying, we are all on the same playing field. We need to serve each other. We need to love each other. As if we are loving God himself. Before I finish, I want to take you back to that, that story that I shared with Dave. With Dave, with the Dixie Captain. And uh, it's often said that that youth pastors have this uh, crazy way of applying anything in life to the Bible and Jesus. Okay, you can say anything in the Bible. So openly, on that faithful morning, with Kevin and I sitting in the doorway in Dave's office, trying to play it off that we had no clue what was going on, but obviously 
Thanks, Josh. Man, just some awesome principles. Um, and, uh, you know, as Josh was uh, teaching and I was hearing those words uh, from the scriptures, uh, just the thought of Holy Spirit-filled lives and how that affects every relationship. It just changes things. Some of you have been a Christian for a really long time, but some of you have been a Christian in more recent years, and you you can just see the stark change in what it was to be an employee as a non-Christian and to all of a sudden be an employee and say, man, I'm doing this for the glory of God. That's my sole purpose here. It's no longer for the ambition of getting to be over that guy or make more money than him uh, or or to gain this or that. And, uh, man, I hope that, hope that ministered to you.